0: Hello, and welcome to On Record in Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage, and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Satnam Rana talks to Robin and Mikey from Friendly Fire Band. Composed of an international lineup of musicians, the Friendly Fire sound comfortably juggles traditional roots, dancehall, and one-drop rhythms, which have become synonymous with Birmingham reggae. Saturn asked about the band's love for Birmingham and what inspires their music and lively performances.
1: Wow, it's great to see so many of you here um, in the B Music spaces at the Symphony Hall. So a really warm welcome to everybody. Right, where do I start? If we could package a big bear brummy hug into a jack in the box type toy, wind it up, let it burst back open, you get a brumting. <laughs> I mean, you guys have put so many smiles on our faces. Is that right? Smiles on our faces. We feel so immensely proud of Birmingham right now. Every time you turn the beeb on, the anthem is on. It's absolutely fab. And I know for a fact, being married to a Mancunian-type character, (laughs) they walk with a bit of a spring in their step, don't they? Well, do you know what? The Brummies, spring in a step. And Peacock-like now as well. Down to you guys. So thank you very much.
2: Respect, like, thanks, thanks.
1: So, of course, of course, we're going to be talking about Brumting, but today's also about getting behind the people behind the music. So I'm going to start right from the beginning, just so that everybody knows. This is Mikey. Mikey?
2: Good afternoon, everybody. It's Michael Richards, a.k.a. Mikey Top, a.k.a. The One General, right?
1: And we have Robin.
2: See, he's, he's not a DJ, he's a guitarist, so he doesn't know how to turn the mic on. Huh? <laughs> I'm just Robin. I'm part of the band, one of the original founders. So.
1: So no. without you, Robin, there wouldn't be a friendly fire van. So you're not just Robin, are you? You're, no. You're, you're, not. you're more than just Robin.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: So let's start from the beginning then. Where were you born? Jamaica. And so when did you come to Birmingham?
2: When I was nine. So I came to um, Birmingham 1972.
1: So a nine-year-old boy coming to Birmingham from Jamaica. Tell me about Jamaica, first of all. Do you have any memories?
2: Yeah, 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 I have good memories. I I, I was born, like, on the coast. Um, So what basically happened, I grew up on the coast. I would have been a fisherman. Um, But again, from early on, when when we were little, you either played cricket or you became a fisherman. So fisherman is what I really wanted to become. So um, that was what I wanted to do. But my grandma was always saying, you're going to be going foreign soon, but I didn't really understand what, she's, what she meant about going foreign. So I didn't know I was going to come back to England. I was thought I would stay in Jamaica. So it was just one day I came from school and got a call. Your mum and dad sent for you at England. So that was it.
1: Ah, oh, so you were one of the um, boys where parents had gone off to England beforehand? Yes, so mum
2: and dad had come to England. They were living in a one-bedroom apartment my mum got pregnant. It was a case that the landlord said she couldn't have any more kids in there because there was an older brother and sister. So it was send me back to Jamaica, leave me there, come back, and then send back for me later on.
1: So when you got that call to say that they were going to have you over here in Brum in, in the UK in England, can you remember?
2: Yes, I cried because uh, England was just cold. This is uh, a cold place called England. <laughs> so I was like, no. I Not today. No. <laughs> You know, it was cool because most of the letters in those days, it was grams that parents used to write. So my nan would say, oh, your mum and dad saying it's cold in England and the ice is falling. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not the way good. Why them gone over there? That's not that's not <laughs> where I want to be. So you cried? Yeah, I cried because I didn't want to leave. I, I thought there was it was punishment, like going to a fridge. You know, I thought it was punishment. I thought it was like, that's how you punish kids. Because all I knew was running up and down, swimming, putting the goats aside, you know. That's all we knew. It was, it was a good life. Like, at nine, it was a good life. Because in Jamaica, you kind of... You don't really have a childhood. You're, as soon as you can walk, you're an adult and you're doing adult things. But as a child, it's, it's kind of nice because, you know, that's all I knew. So you, I didn't know any better. I didn't know any better.
1: So what I really want to hear from you is that when you um, got to England... Was it as cold as you had imagined it to be? When yeah,
2: it, I actually came in, in winter. I didn't understand how it was so dark. So I actually thought it was a wicked country. I thought it was a country that you punish people. Because it's dark, <laughs> you know? Because when I came, it was, it was dark at four o'clock and just dark. Where's the sun? There was no sun. I had to wait oh like goodness. four months for the sun. And I kept saying to my brothers, where's the sun there? Only do I have no sun. And I go, yes, that's the sun. Never looked like no sun to me. <laughs> It was cool. And then the, the different people, um, that was an eye-opener, because I'd never seen so much people, you know, and the smells. Um, you know, it was it an was eye-opener.
1: Actually, you don't think about it from that point of view, do you? you come coming no. to, um, a, effectively, cars a foreign country. Was. And actually, it was quite a multicultural Birmingham back then as well, it was, wasn't but it? But for
2: me, as a Jamaican, it was strange that nobody had cows or pigs. They all they just had cars. <laughs> You know, so I, I thought it was the same as, you know, that people yes. would raise cows, but no, I didn't see any animals, so it was, it was weird. It took me about two years to actually get my head around England.
1: What a fascinating view through the, the lens of a nine-year-old, um, you know, completely changing lifestyle, home, yes. environment, which is such a huge thing, but key... Coming to hit, be here with your mum and dad. Yeah, must have I, I am that. that. Yeah, yeah, Hopefully yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, again, as a nine year old now, you get proper ties to play with. What? England ties are good? <laughs> i was happy. I forgot all you the sunshine, the ties were good.
1: Right, Robin, you also came to the UK, didn't you, from? Yeah,
3: from France. It was also traumatic, <laughs> but in a different way. <laughs>
1: I feel as if I'm going to be some sort of diplomat this afternoon. For me, me it
3: was a bit different because I was kind of used to English culture. I'd lived in England as a child when I was a bit younger. And then from the age of seven, when I went back to France, I was in international school. And so they were helping us uh, to apply with UCAS to universities in England to do that. And uh, so I did. And I got two conditional offers for London and for Bristol, which sadly I didn't uh, get the, the marks I was kind of hoping for. So I had to go through clearance at the end, calling all the universities up that had um, the degree I was interested in, which was electronic engineering. And uh, Birmingham said, yeah. And uh, my tutor at the time was like, yeah, Birmingham's a good place, good university, you should go there. I said, OK. And the day be- that was probably about four or five days before I moved. So yeah, got a flight and uh, ended up in Birmingham, not knowing where it was or anything about it at all, apart from the fact that it was quite a-, a difficult city, according to my friends. They were like, if you've got trouble in Paris, wait till you get in Birmingham.
1: And was it? <laughs>
3: It wasn't actually, it was really nice. I mean, once I got, you know, obviously past, not just the weather, the rain, I mean, coming back from the airport through to the university in Selly Oak um, on the train, um, I saw the devastation of, you know, these old factories and rain coming down and greyness and, yeah, it was um,
1: well, slightly
3: traumatic, slightly sli- traumatic.
1: Well, well you, you, you're, allowed, you're allowed to have that because, you know, these are formative years and, um Any sort of move in a formative year is both um, equally exciting and traumatic all at once. What was life like for you then growing up in in an international school environment?
3: So there was a lot of people in that school that had been expats um, and were there. Some of them were still expats. Uh, A lot of them had a French parent and a foreign parent. You know, it's not like being abroad in, in international school, so to speak. It was like a French school still. So the main core of the education was French, and then there was some extra... Kind of language, national.
1: And did you, what sort of boys were you then? I was
3: always into gadgets and into technical stuff and plugging things in and taking things apart and that, definitely, yeah. Which actually got me into DJing more through the appeal of the equipment itself than, than just the music, you know what I mean?
1: And were you? Would you say you were a shy boy or a, or a quite an outgoing boy?
3: Yeah, I was rather shy, I suppose. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was always quite reserved, and so which is why I kind of found you know production and DJing and kind of behind the scenes stuff more than you know. Being, a, being an Bit. MC like Mikey with a loud mouth.
1: Unlike Mikey. Mikey, were you always like this?
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was, I was, I was, I was. Um, I was the one that got in trouble at home. So my, my, my brother and sister used to trick me to sneaking down and trying to steal food to bring back upstairs. So I was used to get caught. So I was the one where my dad said, you stay right here, I don't go nowhere, because I'd be jumping off the wardrobe and swinging off the curtains and... <laughs>
1: You sound absolutely exhausting.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. I was a challenge.
1: Where did that energy come from?
2: Um, just from being Jamaican, really. Because parents didn't really set boundaries. Like, mum and dad used to go to work, and so we were kind of left at home to do our own thing, really. So I used to be the one who used to make up the games and mash up the house, really. To, you know, <laughs> jump off the wardrobe, the somersaults off the wardrobe. You know, but television was a big thing. That's how I kind of got into music because TV was kind of the main thing those days. So seeing Top of the Pops and all those shows, music, that's what kind of, yeah, got me into music was kind of seeing television first. Um, And then, yeah, it was that. But I was always active, like football, gymnastics. So I was in all the the teams at school. I was in all of them, so.
1: So tell me about then um, music. Was it a big, did it play a big part? Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 it did, it did. Music was a big part, so music was always played in the house, and if it wasn't Dad, it was Mom. It wasn't anything that was special, it was just music was played in the house. So it started from radios, then they got a gram, then Mom and Dad used to go to Jamaica every year like for six weeks, so we'd bring back records, and Dad would say, oh, listen to this record. So we'd kind we of, not know what's happening, we'd just jam along with it. You know, so it was just a regular thing, not just on a Sunday. Every day, music would play. So, so you,
1: you said if it wasn't music, it was mum? Did you, Yeah, you if so it was
2: music, it was mum singing and, and, and cracking jokes and making fun of people on the television. You know, because that's, you know, Tommy Cooper, and Alice, she used to make fun of all of them on the television. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep it clean. Because <laughs> I'm
2: already, already
1: worried that all the young kids here are now going to go home over the summer holidays and mash up their house cause, uh,
2: because, because you did if you did they can no because oh. the houses, you know like the houses. so i don't know if anybody anybody here is like is over 50 let me see the hands you remember the, you remember you remember the old houses and you could you could dig out the you could dig out the concrete and sort of eat it like the houses you could, <laughs> yeah you could you could you could, you could dig, dig through the wallpaper and it was all like plaster paris and you know the houses with the outside toilets you know and, oh, and the plasterboard outside. yeah so we used to have great fun digging out the walls and Tearing off the people.: What's <laughs> oh, serious.:
1: I've got a vision of a house with like. My mum
2: and dad would come back and say, "Oh, this house doesn't fall apart. We need a new house, you know."
1: <laughs> Robin, did you did you keep your house intact? No music was yeah. music. Uh, did music play a big role for yeah, you? Yeah, definitely. It like, was always family? it was
2: always
3: present from um, kids just getting together with the family. Like there was always the kind of guitar sing along thing that we do. Um, like I've got quite a numerous family. Like my granddad had nine brothers and sisters. So there's a lot of... My dad's got a lot of cousins, so I've got a lot of second cousins. So it was always kind of a thing, you know, getting together in the those kind of times and playing music. So that was always there. And then when I got a bit older, I got to get into my own music as well and get my own tapes.
1: And was it any particular type of music? Or? It was.
3: It was more like rock music, really. You know, because of the context I was in. It was as in...
1: In, in, Par- in, France, in yeah, France. yeah, what, in like, Paris. Yeah. And so... When did that rock turn into reggae for you? I
3: think when I was a bit older, when I got to 15, 16, and, you know, started just listening to other things. And, you know, it wasn't quite as cool, all the kind of rock and, you know, glam kind of thing. You know, Motley Crue and all that kind of stuff I was into. So, um, yeah, so I discovered Bob Marley and all that. And then coming to Birmingham was really the big turning point in 98 when all these songs that I could only hear on a one-hour radio show a week uh, were actually in the shops. So, like, there was Summit Records just over the, the market. So going in there and seeing all these records and starting to buy vinyl was really what pushed me into reggae, specifically. Like,
1: but just sticking with those early formative years, you've talked about international school. Did that influence you in any way? The fact that you were I, surrounded by so many different nationalities.
3: Yeah, definitely. And also the fact that you know music was a big thing in there. I mean, maybe because it was kind of a you know middle class. Seat. A lot of people had instruments. A lot of people played music. And a lot of us were into rock. So you know we used to bring guitars to school and Skype classes and. Like music, basically. So
1: was that your favourite subject at school, or not?
3: Not really. It wasn't like the French educational system, the music wasn't that exciting. It was some really old lady with a piano and recorders. and It didn't really really go anywhere.
1: (laughs) I know, because I taught in a French school for a year. (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. did. I was a teacher. I used to play them show tunes and make them sing to it as a way of learning English, but that's another story. Um, What about you then? You were a naughty boy. Were you ever at school? Yeah, yeah, no, I was (laughs) in school. School was
2: good. I mean, school kind of made me pick up the guitar. I had to spend an extra year in school because my English wasn't um, strong. So it was um, during that extra year, I actually used to play the guitar, but I I was left-handed, so I used to play it upside down, so my dad changed the strings on the guitar. But when I went to high school, the music teacher said if I wanted to do it, I had to play right-handed, so... I actually learned to play right-hand in, like, two years.
1: Wow. Would that happen now?
2: No, because you got left-handed guitars. (laughs) 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 Yeah, because back in in the, like, 70s, you didn't have many left-handed guitars. But
1: that could have been, for you, that could have been a moment that completely put you off because, you know, if your dad hadn't done what he did... Yeah, so he
2: turned up... I used to play left-handed because I'm naturally left-handed. But... If it was in Jamaica, I wouldn't have listened to him. If it was Jamaica School, I wouldn't listen to him, but he was, he was a good teacher, he was a good teacher. And, and, and I didn't think I could do it, because he, 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 he said to me he was left-handed and he learned to play right-handed. Uh-huh. So when he said that, that's what kind of got me my first guitar. And is that what you were passionate
1: about, then, music? Yeah, yeah, what yeah, yeah.
2: From the beginning, I was passionate about music. What was good about um, UK schools is that you came at age, you could choose subjects that you wanted to take for your exams, so music was one of them, and... I remember one of the teachers wanted me to do French instead of music, and I, I, I had to call mum and dad to kind of argue my case, and even mum and dad would say, no, you must learn some French, and I'm like, I'm not going to speak French to nobody, you know, I'm <laughs> never going to go to France, so I'm going to learn music, <laughs> so that was kind of what first got me really passionate about music, was learning to play the guitar right-handed, and then it was just a basic copying the songs on TV and really just sitting down and playing with them, but it got to a point where my mum was, and dad got fed up, because we kept Playing the guitar when they wanted to watch programs, so <laughs> kind
1: of. It took over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, was that the thing that you guys? Um, you know, was it just that then? Both yeah, of it you, was evidently, just, music, just and music. Mas- yeah. just music yeah, so, so not sport or anything like that. No, uh, well, for okay. me,
3: Yeah, I well, used to do a lot of skateboarding and, and bike riding and that kind of sport.
1: So it was music was and that. sport. And at yeah. what point did the music take over the sport then?
3: To know it's less physically demanding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You can have a beer and do music together. Yeah, can't I mean, you? Yeah.
3: no, actually, what happened is I actually fell on. Oh, yeah, this is a story actually. Now that you made me think of it, I fell off my skateboard. I had quite a dramatic fall and hurt myself, like broke my collarbone, etc., and couldn't skate for a while. And when I got back on the board after that, I was a little bit less um, confident and, you know, I was a bit more scared and it just wasn't so much fun as it was before when you were fearless. So, so what I suppose role, that's then? What... what
1: would you say then? What role has music played um, in your formative years?
3: It was the main activity outside of, obviously, these things. When I got together with my friends, we used to just play music, you know, probably from about 13, 14 onwards. Like, it was a big part of it, definitely.
1: And did you, at that point, think, when I grow up, I am going to get into the music industry?
3: Not directly. I kind of wanted... Well, I've always wanted to, you know, obviously play music because I started playing in bands, et cetera, and all that. But um, I was actually more into thinking of becoming a sound engineer and doing production and stuff. And when I went to like, the school I was in, they were like, well, you know, sound engineer, there's a lot of competition, it's not that, that easy, but you could be an electronic engineer and there's loads of jobs and you'll get rich and all this. So I thought, yeah, man, give, give it a go and, and do well, music engineering
2: later, which is pretty much what I did.
1: And that's yeah. how you find yourself here. And we'll, like I said, we'll go into there, that yeah. a bit more. What about you then, Mikey? We'll...
2: No, it was music. Music was a passion for me and my brother. So me and my younger brother, we, my older brother initially started with the band thing first, um, but it didn't really work out, so he left his guitar. But it was me and my brother. I mean, when I say we was passionate about it, mum and dad had to hide our guitars. We'd wow. be playing it 24-7. Really? We'd not eat dinner, and just a program came and called the Tube, and we used to play every song that came on. I'd have my bass, and we'd just be, <laughs> play, be playing. That's how passionate we was about it. But uh, them times, there was nothing else. I didn't want to be a footballer. The guitar gave me everything that I needed. You know, and I, I realise it now, and that's why we are passionate about it. Because there were times when mom and dad used to say, go out and find a girlfriend on the you know, with a guitar 24-7, that's not healthy for you. So we took our guitars, like the kids with computers, that's how me and my brother was with guitars.
1: You said that um, the guitar was everything that you needed. What, what was it that you needed at, at that moment in your life?
2: It, I think it was really to, to actually hear something and actually copy it and play it. So for me, it was almost like here, you know, we used to watch Tube. Uh, Madonna would come on, and we'd just listen it for a bit, and we'd find a chord, and then we'd be playing it in, like, a couple of minutes.
1: And the learning of the guitar, did that all happen in an educational setting, or were you learning it outside? No, so well? we
2: got... Mum and Dad bought these books for us, but it was all, like... Um, we learned the basic chords, but it was all folk music, like, you know, so it didn't really... Resonate with what we were listening to, so, so we was like, "No, this English music boring." So we, so we just—that's why we copied what was coming on on the TV, old grey whistle test. So we'd we copy all of the bands that came, whatever the rock, ska, reggae. We just copy them and play along. Then again, like I said, for most of our friends around us, they were also kind of into music because it was sound systems then that kind of became the thing that we went out as teenagers and danced to. So we didn't go to rock concerts. We went to sound system dances and that's where we kind of first realised we had a talent, uh, we had a craft. Um, and that's where it kind of all first started from.
1: Let's go into those sound systems actually because they are a really important part yeah, of yeah, yeah, um, yeah, family yeah. histories and musical histories, aren't they? For people yeah. who may not know about that era, can you yeah. give us a bit of an insight into it?
2: Yeah, so basically... Mom and dad used to go to shoe beans. So again, it was um, from Jamaica. You would have somebody, would have a house, and he'd just invite people and he'd sell drinks. The same culture came over in England. So what used to happen is most of our parents would go to these shoe beans. They'd say to us, we're going out. We didn't know. But they'd go to these shoe beans And it was from there that they'd hear the records. Then they'd go to Jamaica and say, oh, that record I heard in the shoe bean I'd bring it here. And it started from there. So then most of... What we now know as the original sound systems were actually built by so my friends' dads, and it's just kind of inherited down from there. So a cousin of ours called Wooligan, he was the first person I know had a sound system. And so he used to come to me and my brother with a tape and say, look, guys, I got this song. I want you to play on the tape. table. Play it slightly different. And we'd play it slightly different. So then we'd go to the dance to hear him play it, and then we'd play it. And I used to always be... um." Like poetry, so I'd always make up rhymes about things. So if my sister's hair wasn't good, I'd make up a song about my sister's hair not being good. And she'd cuss me. And if the mom cooking wasn't good, I'd make up a song about mommy's the chips, the banana, don't nice. And then she'd say, boy, God. So I was always making up rhymes. So what happened within sound systems then, rhyming became a thing. So you, instead of having a, a DJ saying, here's this song by Freddie McGregor or Dennis Brown, you'd have a version and we just make up stories on the version. So I was kind of good at that, just making up songs. So I'd pick on people in the crowd and say, "That lady in the black, that lady in the red, the lady with the short hair, the lady with dreads, the lady, with, you know." And so that kind of is how I then got to become a DJ.
1: So you must have been really good at your English as well. I know you said that you know music was your passion, but subject-wise, you've got to have a good command of English. No,
2: stuff. it was all uh, Jamaican. There was no white people coming. It was just Jamaicans, so we didn't speak English. So this, the original sound systems, it was all black people from Jamaica. Not even Trinidad. They become majority of black people when I came here, and was, it was all from Jamaica. It was later on you'd find friends that come from some of the other small islands. But all of the teenage dances that we went to up until sort of early twenties is when I first started seeing white people come in. But it was strictly a Caribbean affair. So you didn't speak English; you spoke Patois.
1: You've um. Painted a beautiful picture of the sound system, but you said something really important. It was all black people, and actually there was a reason for that as well, wasn't there? The fact that sound systems happened in the first place, because quite, you know, the other side of the coin is that you weren't allowed in.
2: Right, we weren't allowed in. We, you know, we, we tried to go to clubs uptown. You know, we used to dress Chris. You know, we used to spend £70 on a Gabichi shirt, and we used to, you know, we used to dress... Smart. And we'd go up there and they go, sorry lads, it's um, no ties and on And we'd go and put on a tie. Oh, sorry lads, it's... it's. It. Ah, so we had to more or less go um, to places then where we could go, which was your local school halls. The first dances we kind of went to were in our local school halls. You know, the school would say, okay, we'll give you the hall from 7 till 10 p.m. And we'd string up the sound systems in there, buy um, boxes of lollipops to sell, buy drinks to sell for 2p. And it was it was almost the initial youth club. That's kinda how it was. Like it was initially started as a youth club. And you'd go in there and you'd see the guys with the sound systems and with dance. And it was just seven till ten. But that's the beginning of it. All the love injections, the wassified, they're all there.
1: And how things have changed over I the decade. I know, decades. I
2: know, I know, I know. It's it's brilliant. It's it's actually um that's one of the beauties um that I like about growing up in Birmingham, It's to see the change. And be part of that change and actually see that it's a change of positivity. Because when we started doing what we were doing, we used to be like, if only other people could come and hear what we're doing. You know, so we had black friends and white friends. But when we'd call at their house um, and say, can Joe come with us? The parents said, no, 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 Joe's not coming out with you guys. And Joe wanted to, but the parents wouldn't let them come out. So... um For me, it's nice now seeing the diversity, because when I first came, it was basically black and white. So we didn't look to integrate, because we had everything that we wanted in our dances. We could say what we wanted about the system, about the police, and everybody would agree. So we didn't really set it out to integrate. It's just for us when Rastafarianism came in then, that was when we then looked to say, okay, we need to start educating non-blacks about Rasta. So... That's then when we started to open up to different cultures and different kind of people. And again, only because the actual communities changed because then parks were a place Then you could then meet non-blacks. You know, and again, after my schooling, when I started working, that's when I started really meeting a lot of non-blacks who were then interested in what I was doing. You know, and then they'd then come to the dance and say, oh, I like this. You know, the is cheap. It doesn't lock at 11 o'clock. You know, because those days in the 70s, pubs would close by 11 o'clock. And whereas our dances would go until like 6 in the morning. So we'd get a lot of white people, would say, the pub finishes 11, if you come to Adi, you can still drink till 6. <laughs> and they'd come along and they'd be like, oh, what's this music, reggae? I love this. <laughs> you know, and that's basically how most of the white friends I know got into it. It was initially a late drinking place, but then they got there, heard the music, loved the music, and was like, no, I like this.
1: Got to start somewhere. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was sort of back in the 70s, 80s? All of that
2: was kind of from, I left school in 79, so it was from 79 till about 84, 85.
1: Was there an equivalent movement in your sort of teen, young adult years where there was this fusion of music and people coming together or was it still fairly siloed? Yeah,
3: I think it was a bit different for me because I would live to, I didn't live in Paris, I was in the suburbs, so we didn't really have access to all of this. And, uh, and I left home when I was 18 to come to England. So I didn't really have that kind of going-out experience in France.
1: So your going-out experience was Birmingham, Yeah, more in basically. Birmingham, definitely. And can you remember, then, your first night out in Birmingham? What was it like?
3: Yeah, I can <laughs> remember, actually. Because what happened is I ended up uh, living in, in Borsalith for the, my first year because I applied late. I didn't have room in, um, in, in halls like the other students. So I ended up with some French Erasmus students. Um, we well, actually just by uh, Cannonell Park. And so the first night we actually went out together was uh, called Satan's Paradise, in uh, in Mosley,
1: do you know? It's a few people in the audience know Satan's Paradise. Which <laughs> was gonna which go? was
3: crazy uh, a crazy experience. Totally, it was a uh, kind of you... underground party in um, some kind of warehouse kind of place. And uh, they had Satan's side was all like breakbeats and stuff like that. And then they had the Paradise beat that had a bit of reggae and all this. I just remember walking in and there's like some guy saying, "Oh, do you want to buy some drugs?" And I was like, "Whoa." I've never seen drugs before, you know. What I mean, so yeah, it was quite a a shock. It was a shock, but it was great as well. I was like, "This is, you know, what I mean, this is like, you know, it was like a proper party. It wasn't like tame in any way, you know. It was, it was really nice." <laughs> and it was kind of an introduction into Mosley as well. That was, just, you know, obviously I was a big say, part of yeah, of, all of this, that, You
1: know, that that probably epitomises everything about Brum, though, doesn't it? Um, it's bringing that a clash of cultures together. And by the way, do not take drugs, children. Um, there are plenty of them in our audience. I, I didn't
3: buy them. I good. said
1: no. Good, good, right answer. Well done. Big round of applause for that. So that probably says everything about Birmingham, doesn't it? That that fusion of um, music. Yeah,
3: and also just the faces that were in there. There was like all sorts of different people from different backgrounds, from different cultures. And I, don't know, I remember uh, DJ X, Nick, that had this one mono dread that was... You know, it's just really kind of uh, visually striking characters as well, especially from where I was, which was, you know, you had French people and Arab people, that's it pretty much. You know what I mean?
1: How much did that influence you then?
3: Well, I think Mosley in general, this was like my first little peep into it. Um, about a year later, I moved in with some other students, you know, that had been hanging out around Mosley for a few years and met um, the people that were doing gibbering records at the time. Well, actually, they hadn't started gibbering records yet. So they were still at uni, but they were going to start that, and now they organise a the Shambhala festival. So mm-hmm. it was this kind of group of people that I met one day. It was like, you know, the beginning of The Matrix, when he gets into that spaceship, and they're all like, and this is this guy, and they're like, hey. You know, that kind of, that you get in a lot of films. That was kind of my first experience, you know, really meeting people in Mosley. That was then a bed to get me out DJing, to get me to meet Damon, with who we started, Janja, with who we started the band a few years later. So that was really the, but like Mosley was really the... The breeding. It was
1: of, the womb. The womb. And the seed exactly. was set and you grew out of it, absolutely. Exactly. Um, and then we got, we got Friendly Fire Band, didn't we? A few years later, you, you formed the band in what?
3: 2006, I think the band was, yeah, a little bit before, I suppose, yeah.
1: So in terms of influencing, I'm getting like, actually, Birmingham's played a massive role in influencing your music. Mikey, for you, was there anybody in particular when you were young that influenced you musically?
2: Um... I mean, I I, I took my influences, Jimmy Engix. I used to like Jimmy Engix. Um, Yeah, there's a lot. There isn't any one particular person that um, I took influences from. Before meeting the band, a lot of what I did was on the sound system, so it was a lot of underground. Sound system culture didn't really surface till the rave scene came in. But prior to that, I was playing guitar, bass guitar in a band, and then DJing on the sound on the other side. But I used to like DJing on the sound better because it was more natural. Um, It was more natural. But there wasn't any real one influence for us. It was, you know, especially after recession, all we did was kind of get up every day and just went to the studio and played with a lot of people. So there wasn't really one uh, individual influence. The whole of the reggae icons, the whole of the rock icons. See, for us, growing up in the UK, seeing a black person on telly, that was like, for us, that was the thing. You know, seeing Jimi Hendrix on there, you know, seeing a lot of the, the, the greats on there kind of inspired us, really. Um, but again, what I always focused on was reggae. So I didn't really try to um, mix our. you know, it was just, look, you know, it's reggae we're doing. So that's that's what we'll do.
1: So how did, um, how did you guys actually get it together as in the band, Friendly Fire Band? How did it all happen?
2: So for me, I was working with a different band, Unit 6. What had happened, Robin's keyboard player was playing with us, um, which was Matt. Um, and our keyboard player um, was playing him some of our tracks that were in the studio. And he was like, oh, who's that? So he said, it's Mike. He said, oh, the bass player. He said, yeah, I didn't know he DJ. He said, yeah, yeah, he DJ. So Matt then gave me a track that Robin had uh, mixed. And that was the first track to voice for him. And Robin liked it. So when I met with Robin, I said, but look, let's not just do one track. Let's just do a project. So we was just really looking into the small EP or something like that, but it just continued growing. Um, so I just said, well, look, I might as well stick with you guys because if I were really musicians, you're all here. So I might as well just make it a working project.
1: So by this time, the actual band itself was, yeah, it was a yeah, the together. band was
3: already established and we'd put out a few seven inches and a few singles, which is how... Also, I think you heard through Little Richie as well that was playing it on the radio. There was that link as well.
2: Yeah, 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 um, yeah.
3: So, yeah, the band started um, out of the sound system, basically. So through meeting all these people that were involved with like putting on events, etc., I got more into DJing and collecting reggae records. And one day when I was sitting in the shop, uh, John, who was the owner of the shop, said, Oh, my friend's starting this reggae night. Which
1: shop is this? Sorry, Sorry,
3: the Gibbering Records uh, record shop in Moseley. A bit of context Mm -hmm. for those who know it. And it was a, a cafe as well and quite a social hub for Mosley where a lot of musicians and DJs would kind of congregate and, you know, it was kind of really a happening place. And so they said um, Damon starting a night at the pub next door, which he'd already started in the custard factory, but it just moved there. And he said, you know, bring some records and uh, play some records. So I brought them, met Bongo Damo. Damo's the drummer of the band, by the way, folks. Exactly, who, who at the time was DJing as well. He had the night every Monday, so I said, come again. So we started the sound system together through... Doing this DJing weekly and getting different singers on every now and again. And I was also producing music on my computer. We decided to you know, get a band together. He played the drums. I played the guitar. Uh, we had a guy called Fly who was also playing uh, bass with Damon in, um, in another project called Munch Break. And um, yeah, we decided to put a band together of fans, musicians and yeah.
1: And, um, and, and then along came Mikey.
3: No, <laughs> quite, quite, oh, no. So, I'm one of the last I, members. I joined yeah. the band late. Originally, when we started, we started as a three-piece, just like jamming together, right. not really doing much. Then um, Matt, who also worked in the rehearsal studio, played the keyboards, and he knew loads about reggae, so he got involved as well. So that was the kind of core of the band. And then Tomlin got involved, uh, Lionheart got involved. We did a few... Kind of back in gigs as well, and that was kind of the beginning of the project. I think we started like that.
1: Because I was going to ask you, um, can you remember your first gig? But it feels like there was a first gig, and then another first gig, and then probably another first gig, depending on who was yeah, in the band. Yeah, I mean,
3: <laughs> as a band, the first inclination of the band, it was actually called the Janja All Stars, as a reference to the Janja Sound, which was our sound system, and was um, with Paradox, an MC called Paradox, who was um, an amazing um, vocalist. And that was, um, yeah, that was the first show, it was for somebody's birthday in uh, the allotments in Balsalith, in Mosley, the back of Mosley. So that was, that was probably even before the first gig I told you. that's was probably 2005 or something. And it was in the context of a friend having his birthday, and he said,
1: "Oh, you know. So actually quite a nice, safe setting then.
3: It was very safe, yeah, and it was nice, it went down all right.
1: And can you remember, collectively, then, your first gig um, as a band, uh, as we know you now? No, because even,
3: even Lucas, who plays the guitar and sings the leads, uh, lead vocals, he came in late as well after you, I think. And that was on the back of a backing gig we had with uh, an artist called Rod Taylor. And there was a lot of guitars in it. So we decided to have two guitars. And then it turns out Lucas wrote his own song. He was also a really good uh, backing vocalist. So he ended up staying in the band, basically. And that would have been five years ago.
1: So a lot of people we've spoken to in this series have sort of either been solo or been in bands and been sort of the same same gang all the way through. Whereas for me, it feels as if you've just... Taken people along with you and then yeah. brought them in. Mean, I think the, yeah. the,
3: the core yeah. of the musicians has been the same since since the beginning. Basically, um, it's more the singers and the vocalists that have kind of come and gone, and we've done different projects. With, you know, if you look at our, our discography online, we've got songs in collaboration with loads of different singers, and so we've kind of got a backing band thing going as well. And so, the, yeah, the singers have kind of changed, but this is kind of the this has been what about three four years that it's been this. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the the band will evolve whichever will evolve, because we're not afraid to work with different singers and artists. So, you know, if um, somebody brings something good to the plate and they want to be part of it, we wouldn't directly say no. But the core of it is basically the musicians. And then what happens is different singers will come along and play with the band for a certain time. Because when I joined the band, they were more a roots um, type of band. So I kind of brought a dancehall element to the band, you know.
1: It's, for me, the messaging behind your music... You know, if you listen with intent, there's some deep, deep messages. But you do it with a smile. Is that deliberate?
3: I mean, for me, I think uh, one of the great things about reggae is exactly what you just described. You know, what I mean, it's an uplifting music. You hear it, it draws you in because it's, you know, it's exciting, it's vibey. But then the lyrics are often, you know, quite serious and and important. And, and the fact that you can get drawn in by something that sounds almost light, it's kind of yeah. It's really the strength of the music in, in terms of passing our messages.
2: Yeah, I think it's deliberate. Cause, um, so I write to a wider audience now. So I only used to write to a predominantly black audience. But I'm conscious now that when I write, I write so that other people can understand what I'm trying to get across. So it kind I think that's why it kind of makes it happy. Because originally, if we were singing a song about police, we wouldn't smile, we'd be singing it angrily, you know, so... And the crowd will be with that, but for the songs we sing now, the, the the kind of crowd that we get now, and the audience we get now, we make it more appealing so people actually uh, be prepared to listen to it. So yeah, so it's deliberate. It is kind of deliberate.
1: So what matters more, the lyrics for you or the melody, music, or composition that comes with it?
3: It's definitely both things. Like yeah, it's both. Yeah. What well, what really attracted me to the music, you know, when I started listening to it more than anything, is the militancy in it, and you know, the fact that it's not just you know. Talking about how you're upset about your girlfriend last week or whatever, it's actually important things. And I think reggae has become like uh, the music of struggles around the world, not just from, you know, from a black kind of Rasta perspective, which is what it comes out of. But in any country, any kind of freedom fighters will identify to this kind of music. And now you find people writing militant reggae songs, but completely disconnected from Jamaica, from Africa, from all of that, you know what I mean?
1: Is that how you say it, Mikey, as well? The music of the
2: struggle? Yeah, 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 definitely. Reggae has always, um, like when I said we always did reggae because it was almost like, um, reggae is the song that will say, let's legalise cannabis. Most other music firms don't say that. Reggae is the song that will say police are corrupt. Most other music firms will be afraid to touch those subjects because what you find with music is you deal with um, the, the public and then you deal with the uh, the authorities. And people are only going to hear what, the stations are going to play. So you have people that will say, no, we don't want anything that's going to create a revolution, so let's not play this kind of music. So most radio stations would rather play songs that are going, I feel lovely, I love my wife, I love my kids, rather than say there's a problem with the government, there's a problem with racism. You know, So reggae is the music that does that, and I think people look to reggae for that. And I think people accept other forms of music. It's just I think when people then decide they're going to come to listen to reggae, people are going to write... I need to hear a message, or I need to hear something good that I can dance to, you know. So people come to reggae and say, oh, "I want to have a good night tonight. Let's go to reggae. Come on, we'll have a good night." You know, or people say, "You know, I want to hear something conscious." Um, so reggae is kind of that form of music.
1: And I suppose by mixing in ska, upbeat ska, dancehall, like you have, it then just broadens out the audience.
2: Yeah, it does. And all it does is, is, is kind of um, sing different songs in different styles because we could. Do just a root set, but we appreciate that there are different kinds of people that like different kinds of music. So we write that music for people. And so if people come to Friendly Fire and they go, I only like ska, we'll give you ska. If people come to Friendly Fire and say, I only like roots, you'll get roots. If people come and say, I only like dancehall, you'll get dancehall. And we consciously write like that because we've we've recognized our audience over the years. You know, we speak to them, engage with them. And, you know, we just listen to what they say about our music and kind of take that on board.
3: I think also a lot of the, how, you know, what you've just described about the different styles of music in the band is really quite similar to the sound system side of it. Yeah. Where we will play music for everyone. And I think, you know, the band kind of is, is the live version of the sound system. You know? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, for real. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that writing for everyone, performing for everyone, right now, everyone knows you because of Brum Ting. I mean, that epitomizes everything you've talked about. And I know it's not, well, I was going to say it's not necessarily about struggle, but actually, if you listen carefully, there's a whole history yep. of Birmingham in India. there. Yeah, the good yeah, bits, yeah. the bad bits, everything. So yeah, yeah. how deliberate was that? And tell me how it all came about.
2: So again, um, big up Jez Collins. Give my a round of applause, people. Jez Collins, give me a round of applause. Birmingham Music Archives. No, big up, big up, big up. Again, like you heard it from Jez. Jez and Robin and Damo um, went back a few years. Jez had always been um, following the band. Um, and we got an opportunity to perform at the Bearwood Festival. Um, and it was from there, Jez was involved in actual um, the Commonwealth Games. And I think when he heard they were looking for bands, he thought, you know what, Friendly Fire. So big up Jez. And like I said, the brief that we got was um, to write a song about Birmingham that's personal to you. But because we was a band, it was difficult to go write, write some. So if it was Mikey Tuff, I could have wrote some individual. But as a band, we was I was like, well, you know, I can't really write individual. So I'm going to write it like if somebody was going to come to Birmingham, what's the things they would know about Birmingham? You know what I mean? And so the references, what we use are those things, you know, which epitomize and says Birmingham, you know, Spaghetti Junction, you know, Baltic Triangle, you know, everybody comes to Birmingham, where's the Baltic Triangle? you gone to the Baltic Triangle, you know, so that was really, when we wrote the song, we wrote it as a song that if people came to Birmingham, I wanted to know about Birmingham, what are the main things that people would say to you about Birmingham, you know, Town Hall, Icon Gallery, Joseph Chems, so we decided and I, I didn't realize um, Lord of the Rings that uh, Tolkien was, was was just up the most of oh, the did he not? No. Yeah, just the only um... one was shooting the video. like, why are we going down here? And then he saying, Lord <laughs> <"Dada> of Tolkien. <laughs> oh, alright then, come. It's a wrong thing. I didn't know Lord of the Rings and all them. He's Mose just the a band. little <laughs> bit famous. No. Yeah, no, yes, I didn't, I, no. bit I didn't know. Well,
1: that's the thing, isn't it? You can be a Brummy, you can be like, from the West Midlands, and you don't necessarily know you're in history. No.
3: Uh-uh.
1: And oh, isn't that the surprised. point of this song, to connect those who are here with our do own that. history yep. yeah, and then also welcome our guests for the Commonwealth Games and beyond yeah, into yeah, the city as well yeah, through, yeah, yeah. Through, through song and sound? Yeah.
3: yeah, definitely. It's kind of an advert, really. It's like a three-minute advert. Mungo yeah, like, yeah. Dame would describe it as a three-minute advert for Birmingham. If you've never been here, listen to the song, Sold.
1: And when you find out that the BBC were taking it on as their sort of anthem signature tune for the Commonwealth Games... Right, just take me back to the that moment when you guys were told what happened? Right.
2: Um, well, I was thinking I'm going to pay up my mortgage. Big money. Yeah, BBC, give me some money. Let me finish pay up my house. Give me some money.
1: As somebody who worked for the BBC for 22 years, I, I know, still I like, I I have know, a mortgage. I know, I
2: know, I know. I know. <laughs> I so. Then I realised I was dreaming. I was dreaming.
1: Public service, public service, public service. <laughs> but no, God. but to answer the question, to be
2: honest, we was over the moon that it was just on the album. We was. Just being on the album alone that we was happy with that. Um, and to be fair, when, when they did say BBC, again, like I said, I just said to the guys, well, all it should really do is get us more shows. You know what I mean? So BBC wasn't really a big thing. Um, if the head of BBC had knocked on my door and said, okay, then different. But when we were at BBC, we were taking it up. Even I was like, all right, you know what, let them take it up. It's, we just run with it yeah. and just make the most of it.
3: I mean, the way it happened is we got a message on, uh, on Facebook saying, hi, uh, I deal with like syncing at BBC. You know, we're interested in using your song. Would you be interested? Email me. So I was like, yeah, we're definitely interested, so I emailed her. She didn't get back to me, so I emailed her again. And, <laughs> and eventually they said, oh, you know, we're we interested in using it for our um, coverage. Yeah, but I don't think at any point, really, until recently, we really realised kind of the extent of it. You know, are they going to use it? You know.
1: I remember when these um, talks going on, because Jess said to me, oh, yeah, you know, maybe it's, this is going to happen. And um, we thought, oh, maybe they'll take 30 seconds, because you just never know. With Auntie, she does what she wants to do. Um, So we thought, you know, maybe they'll take 30 seconds. But it's actually the whole song. And and it's been played. It was played at the Alexander Stadium, at this spectacular opening ceremony that we had for the Commonwealth Games. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean... I just bounced out of the stadium with, with my son, who's there in the audience, way there. and um, you know, we, 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 we just jammed out of the stadium to Brumting and I felt so so proud. I mean every time you're hearing it at the moment, what's going through your minds and the bellies and the bit of your stomach?
2: You know, again, like I say, for me, the highlight of it was when we got the on unre- you know, when we when it, when we'd finished the master and we got the copy of record. I was happy then. You know, really So the- you must
1: be ecstatic now.
2: When you've been in the music business as long as I have, and you do it for the love more than the money, really it's just, for me, it's a reflection of the band and a reflection of Birmingham. So that's, I just see that BBC at last pick up and say, I'm going to run with Birmingham, yeah, you know, yeah, it's and, really- and, and, and it's a good thing for Birmingham, not just for we. You get know me? I Because mean? again, it's not, like I said, if they'd come with a big check, then differently, yes. But when you've been so long in the music industry, and it's, it's changed, and people hear um, a lot of musicians talk about the music industry. And the, the, the whole of the music industry is kind of, it's corrupt, basically. So, again, BBC only picked up the song because it was good. And it matched what they were doing. You get what I mean? So it wasn't, it wasn't like they actively went out and go, oh, let's resource. It's just a song that they heard that was good we accept that and appreciate and we just run with it. But, you know, we're not going to go, oh, yes, yeah, we finally made it, and, uh, you know, if you're going to do interview, well, you're going to pay us money, and nah, it's just, we're going to carry on doing the same Friendly Fire. All we know, we got a wider audience that will come to see some of our shows, and we'll just still perform good music. But Ah. we're not really making it run away with our head. If, If we all came and said to you, you know, BBC has took up the tune and Ireland has given us a 5 million album deal, then yeah, but nothing's really changed.
3: But for me, I, well, I don't actually own a TV or anything, so I haven't really had the chance of, of getting that surprise myself. But what I found really um, pleasant is all my friends texting me and people saying, Well, oh, I just saw you on yeah. TV. And I was telling my friend to come out, I know these guys and all this, you know. And for me, that excitement is really what, what the music's about. It's about sharing stuff and about, you know... About guessing your friends, you know what I
1: mean? But I think you've just captured something about us Brummies, which is very much about we keep our feet on the ground.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely. We, we do. No matter what happens, we keep our feet on the ground. And yeah, I'll tell you yeah. what, even if, if they start lifting a little bit, there's usually another Brummie somewhere very close by to put you right back down. Yeah, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, So actually, in your mind then, are oh, you so humble with it, but how do you feel Brummies have influenced music in the UK and across the world?
3: Well, hugely, just from the fact that there's so many different people here and that's, you know, brought the likes of, you know, UB40 and bands like that that have gone
2: international, that are basically rooted in multiculturalism. I think, I always say UK reggae, you get know I me, mean? because we play UK reggae. But it's nice to big up Birmingham because London, Manchester, as a music, you know, they go Manchester for the dance scene, they go London because that's where reason. Birmingham doesn't really get um, a leg up when it comes to music. You will say you be 40, but then people say, yeah, but it's a reggae band. You get know I me? Mean? But we have other big bands that come from here. And to be fair, I don't really sit down and watch what they're doing. It's just where we go, we will represent Brum. You get know what I mean? And even before this song played, when we do our shows, we let them know we're from Birmingham. You know, that's why we hashtag 012 in all our... Before the song came out, we were the first band to kind of hashtag 012 reggae, you know, in all our posts. Um... And that's basically where it is. I mean, the influences are all around, and they'll, they'll always be around. And I don't think, I can't put my finger on what defines us as Bromis, except that we're loving people. You know, um, Birmingham is a place where, you know, you can talk to someone. you get lost on the road. Someone will tell you where to go, and if you don't know, they'll show you. You know, and that's what I found with Bromis. It's, it's a place that's full of love. I can go and talk to anybody. Where's it's a skinhead, you know, you can go and talk to them. You know, you can talk, whereas, you know, London, you can't talk to most people. If you're lost in London, people just read them, read them at me. But Birmingham, people will talk to you, and, you know, that's the love I feel in Birmingham.
1: Is that what's. Uh... <laughs> Is that. What's
2: kept you here? Then? Yeah, yeah, but we're, we're touchy, huggy, feely people, you know. We're, we everybody, you know. We're at the high. We're like, hey, you know. That's Broms. You know, it's, it, it, it is, I, I, haven't, I haven't thought of living anywhere else. Um, for any other reason, that because Brum has provided me with everything that I need. I've never thought about leaving Birmingham. And from I've been here, it's, it's always been my home. You know, and I don't really reference Jamaica people as wherever as a Birmingham. You're gonna say, no, 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 where are you originally from? It's a Birmingham. Let's say, no, all right, Jamaica. And what about <laughs>
1: you, Robin?
3: Yeah, I, you know, I agree, man. You know, I definitely feel like a brummy now um, because it is welcoming. I mean, just coming here, you know, as a teenager, when I first, you know, came off the plane and everybody's calling you Bab and, you know, just being nice to you. Yeah, it's...
1: I've seen the Yes, Bab t-shirt. I've got the same t-shirt. It's a good, yeah, I mean, good, it's, good pick. Yes, Bab.
2: Yeah, yeah no, no, it is, man. That, that's, that's Birmingham. Again, for me, it's the diversity, you know? It's the diversity and um, the different communities that, although they're separate, you can always still go there, you know, like the Balti Belt is over Sal. And people drive and go there and still feel at home. You know, the football, everything. It's, it's, for me, Birmingham is, to me, when I go festivals, that's Birmingham. You know, it's a, it's a multicultural mix of people that get along. You know, you don't have to look out the window, just look along there. I think being central, most people have to pass through. And I got loads of cousins who come and stay with me when they go in London. And they say, you know, my Birmingham, oh, we always feel welcome here, man. It's the one city we come and, you know, we always feel welcome. I mean, and even getting to where you need to get to in Birmingham, it's quite easy. You know, so, but for me, it's the people of Birmingham, man. It's, it, that's what makes Birmingham, the people. It definitely is, man. You know, and I, I wouldn't live anywhere else. You know, it's Birmingham for me.
1: And that is where I'm going to finish off our brilliant chat this afternoon. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, Friendly Fire Be good.
0: On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund.